Before we get into our message today, I just one additional uh, note. I forgot to mention the announcements. Uh, next week, the Zoom call, 10 o'clock. I think I said that. But August 30th through, um, uh, through the month of September, we'll be gathering outside um, at Northwest UMC, and you can find that information. But it's at 11.30. Um, if you show up at 10, they actually have a service at 10, and you're welcome to participate in their service. Um, but uh, because they have a service in that space at 10, the church that, that owns the space, we're going to be doing our service at 11.30. So just make a note of that. It is a different time, but, uh, but, uh, but I think it'll, we'll be able to figure that out. So um, 10 o'clock next week on Zoom. You can even come right here, and we'll show you where to go from there. But uh, starting August 30th through September, uh, we'll be at 11.30, and it'll be outside. And if you don't want to join us, if you don't want to come or you're not able to, we'll still be doing the podcast as a way for you to engage digitally. Um, uh, today we're going to continue our series on Genesis. Before I do, I, I, we are going to get into some stuff, uh, as we sometimes do on Sunday. And uh, so I do want to just take a second and pray. Will you, will you pray with me? God, um, as we come and we wrestle with some of the hard things of life, uh, we just ask that you would speak through me, um, that your word would become relevant to our hearts and our spirits, that you would uh, allow us to know you better and to know ourselves better in the process, that you would allow scripture to be a mirror that we can hold up and, and see kind of the ugliness as well as the beauty that it is to be human and that you have, uh, that you are in the process of redeeming and making us new. Um, help us today. Allow my words to be uh, pleasing in your sight. And um, we give you thanks for anything you might accomplish in my heart and in our hearts together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Given everything that's happening in the world from uh, George Floyd to Black Lives Matter um, to our continued uh, work in addressing systemic racism in America, to our church's work that we're going to be doing and we'll share more about in the future around diversity and race reconciliation. We can't read through Genesis and not stop on this journey through Genesis without recognizing the way in which our faith and parts of this book, the book of Genesis, has perpetuated racism in America. Did you know that one of the bedrock passages, one of the bedrock passages used for a theological statement used by white Christians, uh, was used by white Christians to support American slavery, is found right here in Genesis. It's Genesis chapter 9, which is the chapter we're on today. Did you know, and maybe you did, maybe you didn't, that Noah, the very Noah from uh, Noah and the Flood and the Arks, you know, the kids' mural up on the wall, which, side note, not a great story for children. I mean, it's apocalypse. Um, a lot of people die. But, but you know, the Noah with the rainbow and the animals and the Ark and all of that, that Noah is cited, quoted consistently in, in the past by uh, white slave owners as a biblical basis for slavery, for enslaving and mistreating an entire nation, race, population of people. Fun fact, Noah only speaks once in the Bible. The rest of the time he listens and does. If you read Noah's story, he doesn't get any, uh, he doesn't get any time to talk. The, the rest of the time he listens, but the one time he speaks, that words that he quote is quoted for centuries to justify uh, race-based slavery. It's true. And we can't walk through Genesis, especially in this world that we live now and the conversations that are happening, without naming that, learning from it, and doing our part to undo it. So here's how the story goes. Noah is called by God to build an ark. Noah builds it. 
Uh, he saves a few animals. Imagine the animals that get saved. They're like, we made it. Uh, it rains. Everyone else dies. Uh, they survive. A few survive. The ground then dries up. They leave the ark. They offer a sacrifice to God. So you can imagine the animals that were selected for the sacrifice. Like, we survived the flood only to be sacrificed. Oh my gosh. But God blesses them. There's a rainbow and a covenant. That's the story of Noah and the ark. And that's the story you might be familiar with, with uh, children's Bible stories or nursery animals or, or your own reading of the text. But that's not where Noah's story ends. And this story happens years later. Noah has a run-in with his son. Noah gets drunk. He passes out, ends up naked on the floor of his tent. His son takes advantage of that situation, adding shame to shame. And so Noah wakes up, curses him, and curses one of his grandsons by, curses him by cursing one of his grandsons and says that that son, his grandson, will be a slave to his brothers and uncles. Here's what he says, Genesis 9, 24. It says, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Noah. One of, about one of uh, uh, two times where Noah gets to talk. He, that's what he said. He says, he curses him and he says that, that he, his grandson, the son of the son who he had a run-in with, is going to be the lowest of slaves. We'll look at this word uh, from Noah in context in a second. But first, let's consider um, how it was used uh, to support slavery. Here's what you need to know. Outside the passage, uh, this passage in the Bible, uh, the Bible never really condemns or commends slavery. Most times the Bible tries to regulate it, often pushing society to more just treatment of slaves, but still it never condemns it, and that's its own problem that we just don't have time to dissect today. But it also never suggests slaves should be made from an entire race or family line outside of this passage, which is why this passage was quoted so often regarding enslaving an entire uh, people, of, uh, an entire culture of people. I do want to warn you, this is some hard stuff that we're going to get into. And the way people have used this passage is hard. It's, it's messed up. Um, if you're a white follower of Jesus, I encourage you to listen. A couple of uh, people I'm going to quote were also white and followed, claimed to follow Jesus. So we need to name this and we need to make it clear to the world that that isn't us, that we don't agree with it. Now, if you're a person of color watching or listening, um, or especially black or African-American, uh, you likely know this already. And I can understand why you might not want to sit through it again. But I do hope that you can understand why, in our context, it's important for us to walk through this. So with that said, here are just three historical ways that this story of Noah was used, going back quite a ways into uh, history. One of the earliest interpretations of this can be actually found by a Muslim historian that lived during the 8 and 900s. Um, he, uh, he actually... Uh, happened to disagree with this interpretation of Genesis, but still cited it as a popular way for interpreting the passage, giving us kind of a glimpse into this view of this perspective. Ibram Kendi, in his book, Stamp from Beginning, explains the view here. He says, There is one enslavement theory focused on black people already circulating. This is back eight, nine hundreds, long time ago. A theory somehow derived from Genesis 9, 18 to 29, our passage for today which said that Negroes were the children of Ham, the son of Noah, and that they were singled out to be black as the result of Noah's curse, 
which produced Ham's color and the slavery God inflicted upon his descendants. As Colden, the Muslim historian, explained, God had permanently cursed ugly blackness and slavery into the very nature of African people, curse theorist, theorist maintained. As early as the 800s AD, people were teaching that it was Noah's curse on Canaan that not only made black people slaves, but made them black. That their blackness was a result of the curse. This was one of the theories that tried to explain why humans had different shades of skin. One of the theories was the the Bible, and it was this curse theory, that Noah's curse, that some people were darker because God had cursed them. Now you need to understand, pulling from this passage, blackness itself wasn't even seen as beautiful or a reflection of creativity of God or even as natural as a part of like an adaptation. It was viewed as a curse. Now just to be clear, this isn't what the Bible says. We'll look at that soon, but this is what people were teaching. Jump ahead to the 1500s and we have the account of a writer who traveled the world, George Best, discussed his view of Africans as understood from his interpretation of this passage, which he embellishes quite a bit. He says, in Best's whimsical interpretation of Genesis, Noah orders his white and angel-like sons to abstain from sex with their wives on the ark and then tells them that the first child born after the flood would inherit the earth. When the evil, tyrannical, and hypersexual Ham has sex on the ark, God wills that Ham's descendants shall be so black and loathsome, in best telling, that it might remain a spectacle of disobedience to all the world. So once again, blackness, pulling from Scripture, people who claim to follow Jesus, blackness was considered a part of this curse that came from Noah. Now, once again, this, this or any of the embellishments that we see here aren't in Scripture, but they were stories being told amongst people who supported, eventually using it as ammunition to support specifically the enslavement of black people. This was the narrative that they claimed, and they claimed it was biblical. Skip ahead to the 1800s, just before the formation of the Confederacy and the Civil War, Jefferson Davis, senator from Mississippi, who would go on to become the president of the Confederacy, he was against, of course he was, against any federal government help that would provide education to black people. And there was a bill on the table that was going to provide education to black people. And here's what he said, and I went down actually and tracked the original source for this one. I found an online version of what's called the Congressional Globe. I really dug into the internet today, uh, this week, friends. Which is, uh, this Congressional Globe is this record of congressional debates. And in its transcript, Davis argues, uh, argument is recorded by the Senate, and where he's, he's currently arguing the Senate of Iowa, who was explaining in Iowa that they provide public education to both white and black children, um, and that he's in support of the bill. So Davis argues against it, and here's how David responds. And this is, in our history, uh, recorded for all of time, uh, David responds very clearly when he says to the senator from Iowa this, the government was not founded by Negroes for Negroes, but by white men for white men. He goes on ahead. And if you skip down the conversation, Davis continues to attack the senator from Iowa. And at one point, Davis references this story where there's some scholar argued that he could have done better than God in creating the world, that God would have been wise to seek his counsel. And, and Davis, Jefferson Davis, pulling from that reference, argues this about the, uh, the senator from Iowa. He says, such an offense, or the idea that you could be better than God, the senator of Iowa does when he arraigns, i.e. challenges, the inequality of the white 
and black races. Stamped from the beginning, marked in decree and prophecy, the will of God, which the puny efforts of man have in vain attempted to subvert. In other words, the president, the future president of the Confederacy, argues that whites and blacks weren't equal. And the idea that they were went against what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, what it meant to be a person of faith, what it meant to be a biblical person. Because it was decreed by God. And what was his reasoning for this racial inequality? The Bible, of course. More specifically, the book of Genesis and the story of Adam and Noah. And so here he is. He's arguing against this bill that would support young black children and provide them with education. And this is his argument. This is his rationale. He goes on and he says this. When Cain, for the commission of the great, first great crime, was driven from the face of Adam. He's referencing stories we've just spent some time with over the last couple of months. He says, Cain was driven from the face of Adam, no longer the fit associate of those whose creed to experience dominion over the earth. He found in the land of Nod those to whom his crime had degraded him to an equality. And when the low and vulgar son of Noah, who laughed at his father's exposure, this is the story we're on today, sunk by debasing himself and his lineage by connection with an inferior race of men, he doomed his descendants to perpetual slavery. Noah spoke the decree or prophecy, as gentlemen may choose to consider it, one or the other. In other words, here's what he's saying. Noah said that the sons of Canaan would be slaves. And whether that was a decree or a prophecy, either way, it's just meant to happen. And black people should just be, they are inferior at the hand of God. Now, I don't want to give any weight to this. I don't even want it repeated, but we can't move on from history if we don't recognize it until we come to terms with it. Now, this is horrible, and it was done in many ways in the name of Jesus using the Bible by people who claim to believe the Bible, white people who claim to follow the Bible. And I'm not personally responsible for what they said, but I am responsible for making it clear that just because I'm white and I follow Jesus doesn't mean I agree, because I wholeheartedly disagree with this reasoning. Now, some of you might say, okay, Joe, people were horrible in the past, but it's in the past. We've moved on. Uh, You can hear this a lot. And it's true, we've moved on in some ways, um, and things have gotten better. Um, but we haven't arrived. So I reached out to my friend. He's a black pastor who serves in Columbus. I sent him a Facebook message. I told him what I was talking about today. I asked him if this was still a thing. If people still referenced Noah's curse and the ideas around an entire race of people being cursed or inferior to justify racism, if that was something that he was familiar with as as contemporary. He said this to me uh, without even skipping a beat. He said, people still use it to justify American slavery and racial separation. Now, you might be like, I've never heard anyone say this. Well, it's probably because you're white. You know, people aren't explaining it to us. He explained later, I asked him some additional questions. I said, how does this play out? Like, what do you mean by that? And he said that he had served churches in the 2000s, probably predominantly white churches, where members confessed to him or told him that that one of the ways that it plays out is this this idea that people are inferior. And he says that, that people believed that heaven had levels of goodness. He said, quote, colored people will get to heaven but it wouldn't be as nice as white people heaven. Less than 20 years ago, people were saying this to my friend. This idea that entire, that there's a hierarchy, that certain races or colors of skin have certain benefits that others don't, stemming all the way back many times to this foundational passage in Genesis chapter 9, where people believe 
Noah cursed an entire group of people. This idea that God blessed some races and cursed others. So the question is, is that true? Well, given all of that, let's look at what the passage actually says. Original source. (laughs) What does the Bible actually say? If you want to follow along, we're going to be in Genesis uh, chapter 9, starting with uh, uh, verse uh, 18. It says this. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who scattered over the whole earth. Now, right here, the story is set up. Uh, Noah has these three sons, and one of them has a son. His name is Canaan, and of these three sons would come the nation. So in this story, whether literal or metaphorical or whatever, however you interpret it, it's meant to represent not just sons, but entire nations. It's an origin story. And so it's reasonable when thinking about a particular son, what you're actually thinking about is a particular nation. That's how the story is set up. So that part is reasonable. So verse 20. So Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. One of the things we see here is that Noah is following the footsteps of Adam, who was told to cultivate the earth. So Noah does. He builds this vineyard, and it's great. Vineyards throughout the Bible are a a symbol of blessing in Scripture. They're a symbol of God's favor, that if you have vineyards and fruit, that God is blessing you. So, but with any blessing, it can be abused, and it's pretty easy to abuse a vineyard because vineyards mean wine, which, you know, is great but can be abused. So verse 21, this is how he abuses God's blessing. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. He drinks, he gets drunk, he ends up naked, passed out on the floor. This is not an entirely unique story. I'm sure all of us had a friend once where this was the story. If you haven't, God bless you. But I can imagine, I, I know of one story very similar to this one from my younger days. So this is not an entirely unique story. But Noah drinks, gets drunk, ends up on the floor naked. Now, in all seriousness, Noah's story really parallels and is meant to parallel Adam's story. God is starting over. The flood happened. God is starting over. So think about it like this. There's fruit They eat the fruit, Adam, Eve, and Noah, and then eventually there's nakedness, which is ultimately told, we're told earlier in Genesis, is about shame. So Noah is like Adam. He ate the fruit, he ended up naked, and nakedness has already been set up as a a symbol for shame. Now, when Adam and Eve realized they ate the fruit and they realized they were naked, God killed an animal and gave them clothes uh, from the height of that animal. God covered Adam and Eve's nakedness or their shame. God didn't make fun of Adam and Eve. God didn't hurt Adam and Eve or take advantage of them. When someone is experiencing shame, we're told very early in the biblical story that when someone is vulnerable and experiencing shame, nakedness, so to speak, they're naked and afraid, God cares for them. God gives them clothes, covers their shame up, helps them feel safe and protected. That's not what happens to Noah, and this is the problem. Verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. So Ham, he doesn't cover his father. He, he does the opposite. He, he makes it public. He, he goes and tells people about it. He's probably laughing. He's pointing, maybe calling names. The, the Old Testament was really about children honoring their parents, especially their father in a patriarchal society. So this is the extreme alternative to honoring your father. Ham doesn't protect his father in that vulnerable moment of being drunk and passed out on the floor. He exploits it. He, he adds to the shame by making it public. He goes and tells people about it. But his brothers, they they handle it differently. Verse 23. But Shem and Jepheth 
took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. And when they walked in backward, covered their father's naked body. Their faces turned the other way so they would not see their father naked. They kind of go to the other extreme. They not only cover him, but they don't even engage in it. They don't look. They don't want their father, you know, when the father wakes up to be able to say, like, we saw you naked, dad. They're going to avoid that entirely because of the shame and embarrassment and all kinds of cultural ramifications of that. They're careful and they're respective. They don't entertain Ham's crude jokes. They like, like God and Adam and Eve, they cover Noah's shame. They protect him. So verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him. So by this time he wakes up. And it's public knowledge that he had gotten drunk and he was naked in his tent. And everyone knows because Ham, you know, made a big deal. He told everybody, including his brothers. And it's, you know, there's an immense amount of shame, especially in shame culture. It's, it's, embarrassing isn't the right word here. Um, it's, it's much deeper than that. It's shame. So much shame. So here's what Noah does. He says, Cursed be Canaan, Ham's son. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. Okay. A couple of things. So does Noah's curse stand? Are some nations cursed to be slaves and other nations blessed to have slaves? We can't get past the fact that these three brothers are meant to represent nations. That's how they're told in this story. So are they? Is there such a thing as some blessed nations and some cursed? Short answer. No, absolutely not. Long answer. First, Forget all the crazy stuff that people are trying to say in this passage. Ham and Canaan weren't black any more than their brothers and uncles, and that was a big part of the myth and how this was used. When people take scripture and they add to it and they add myth to it, it can become extremely dangerous. So don't let that happen. But, but considering just this passage and not all the white slave owner myths that they added to it, there, here's what we are given this passage when it's in its context. This is the first story where God is silent. God doesn't say or do anything in this story. Every other story up in Genesis to this point has had God as a central character, but not here. So let me be clear. The first thing we need to say is this. This curse isn't from God. It's from Noah. And that's important. Anyone who reads this and says, that's the word of God, could just as easily quote Satan in the Bible and say, that's the word of God. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't mean we should do it. Context matters. And in this context, this was Noah's curse, not God's. And speaking of the fact that it's from Noah, let me just say this. Noah was drunk. He was passed out drunk. He wakes up hungover, finds out that a, his son has made a shame of, you know, made his shame of him in public, and that hungover post-drunk state, he curses his son. Of course he does. Totally normal thing to do in that state of mind. But you're telling me that we're going to take the words from a hungover dad who's mad at his son and use it to justify enslaving an entire nation of people? What's more, the story is about shame. It's about how Ham had exploited his father's shame. In fact, some scholars suggest that there's some euphemism going on here and that maybe Ham did even more to uh, shame his father in more explicit ways. Either way, he shouldn't have exploited his father in a vulnerable position. He shouldn't exploit people's shame. 
This story is about when someone is vulnerable, the last thing God wants us to do is exploit them or take advantage of them, right? So you're telling me we're going to take a story about how we shouldn't exploit vulnerable people and we're going to use it to justify an entire nation of people that they're inferior. No! God help us know. If anything, we can see the harm that can happen when a leader of God's people speaks their own words and those words are taken as God's words. I hope you'll hear me when I say this. If I ever got drunk and passed out, which hasn't happened, okay? So don't cast your judgment over here. But if I ever did and something happened, you know, someone took a permanent marker and wrote on my face or tossed me in a lake or, you know, whatever happens in those scenarios. And I woke up and I'm embarrassed and I'm facing the person who I know did it, who whatever they did to me that was terrible, embarrassing, inappropriate while I was passed out drunk. And I said something to them. Whatever I said to them, First, I hope it wasn't recorded. Second, I absolutely don't want you to build any sort of theological basis, especially one that teaches and enslaves people for hundreds of years. Absolutely not. You've got to give Noah a break. Here's the first and most important lesson in being a follower of Jesus. Just because someone quotes the Bible or references the Bible doesn't mean they are right. I want to repeat those for those in the back. Just because someone quotes the Bible doesn't mean they are right. In fact, when we study the person in life of Jesus, religious rulers and others would come to him quoting the Bible or referencing the Bible or implying the law, and Jesus almost never agreed with their interpretation. In fact, one of those people, uh, people so to speak, who came to Jesus quoting the Bible was the devil. The devil can quote scripture So just because someone quotes scripture doesn't mean they are right. They might be the devil. I mean, that's a legitimate possibility. Second, we as people of scripture, because I take scripture very seriously, and, and I find it a source of an immense amount of life and guidance and revelation from God. We as people of scripture can't gloss over its misuse. No matter how long ago it happened. We, we have to dig in and we have to ask the hard questions and we've we got to be honest about how our faith has hurt people and we have to make amends. We have to name it, we have to address it, we have to understand it, and we have to renounce it. Third, and my final thought is, shame is real. Vulnerability is real. And vulnerability is important. And, and we're often afraid to be vulnerable because of the shame that might come out of it. The way in which it might be exploited And if you're anything like me, which I'm guessing you probably are, one of your biggest reasons why you won't be vulnerable with that person in the room, with your friend over the phone, with your spouse, with your kid, is because you're afraid of what will happen if you let your guard down. You're afraid of how your vulnerability might be misused. Friends, we have to be a safe place for each other where we commit to never exploiting anyone, ourselves, or anyone else because they're in a difficult or vulnerable position. God never wants us to take advantage of people when they're hurting, when they're ashamed, when they're being vulnerable, ever, period. Friends, as we continue on, you know, one of the things we are going to do this year is continue the conversation around what it means to be 
the best version of church. And, and we're, we've got some really fun things planned, uh, really important things planned that we're going to share in the coming weeks around how we're going to continue to address systemic racism and, and, and seek racial reconciliation. And there's some really great conversations happening. And a part of it will be wrestling with our own history, or at least history of America. And even if you don't identify it as your history, um, I certainly don't. But we are going to spend some time having these hard conversations, not every week, but often enough that we can really move forward and become the people God has called us to be. So with that, will you pray with me? God, we come before you and we give you thanks. Lord, we, we humbly repent for the ways in which uh, our ancestors, um, even myself as somebody who's a child of the South, uh, people in my line, going back, grandfathers and great-grandfathers, the ways in which they've used the Bible, uh, the teachings of Jesus, to justify terrible things. Lord, I repent. I ask that you would help us be people who love one another, that we don't use things like scripture or theology to hurt other people, that we use it to help us, all of us, become the people you've created us to be, people who are created in your image, people who you love. Help us, Lord. Help us to be good stewards of your scripture. We give you thanks. In your name we pray. Amen.